Life's Too Short to Drink Bad Coffee. How do you like that title? Amen? Okay. I like it. Uh, I like it mostly because not only do I like coffee, I genuinely love coffee. Um, and I'd like to tell you a little bit about my, uh, my relationship with, uh, with coffee because not everybody loves coffee. In fact, how many like coffee lovers would we have here? Okay, we got... Okay, good. There's also another group in society. These are the coffee haters. How many coffee haters maybe we have here? All right. Okay. You're not going to like this message very much. (laughs) Now, I was not always a coffee lover. Uh, In fact, I remember when in 1990, I was in seminary. I was living in Phoenix, uh, Arizona. And I was hanging out with this guy, and we were near the campus of Arizona State University. And uh, I remember him saying to me, uh, now this is, this is before Starbucks, this is before all of that really took off. I remember him saying to me, hey, do you, you want to go over to this uh, coffee house restaurant? And I said, what's a coffee house restaurant? He said, it's a restaurant, really, and all they do is they serve coffee. And I remember thinking to myself, That is like the dumbest idea that I have ever heard. That is not gonna go anywhere. Who would go to a restaurant where all you get is coffee? It made no sense to me whatsoever. Coffee. I live in a house divided. My, uh, I'm the coffee lover, okay? And I have a very nice coffee maker that uh, gives me a daily reminder of the goodness of God. My wife, Jennifer, is a coffee hater, and try as I might to get her to like coffee, I cannot, she's just not even open to it. Like, she doesn't even want to think about loving coffee. And the reason uh, in her life, I think, is uh, somewhat similar to my own experience growing up. My my parents didn't drink coffee, and by the way, we're going to get into God's Word here in a second. We're just talking about (laughs) coffee, okay? My parents didn't drink coffee growing up. We did not have a coffee maker in the house, but when we went to church and maybe some other social functions, they would drink coffee. They would occasionally maybe let me sip it. And I remember thinking to myself, and by the way, this is back when really the only coffee that you could buy was like Folgers in a red can coffee. Remember that? And how useful all those cans were for other things around the house. So Folgers... Coffee, you know, this is the old drip style kind of coffee. Uh, this, is, this is the kind of coffee that you drink while you're waiting for your tires to be rotated, right? <laughs> that is nasty coffee. That is nasty coffee. And I remember my, my parents would let me taste coffee, and I just was like, it, I was repulsed by it. It was so terrible. And to this day, I, I, I don't like terrible coffee. Like, I don't like tire barn coffee, that kind of coffee. That's not what I'm talking about. What I love, I love gourmet coffee. I love a more refined coffee. I love coffee that um, there's a a certain je ne sais pas about it, right? It's just something about higher-end coffee that does something to you, and it's a happy thing. And uh, my story with getting into coffee was... Again, I, I didn't like coffee growing up, but somewhere in my 20s, late 20s, I started drinking Starbucks 
uh, mocha frappuccinos. Like I was out with somebody and they had one, I let me taste it and I was like, oh, that actually tastes good. And I order my own and then I got drinking those and that then migrated, I tried a hot mocha coffee and I found that now my taste buds were kind of liking that flavor and then I kind of moved, and then I was in the coffee ecosystem, right? And then I got just to where regular coffee was, you know, awesome and wonderful. And so I love coffee. I love good coffee. I love real coffee. I love the smell of coffee. I love the flavor of coffee. I love the romance of coffee. And how many of you know what I'm talking about with that, right? Maybe that's why I was single all those years is I... I didn't need a wife, I had coffee. <laughs> Here's how bad it is for me. Sometimes there are, it's like early evening and I'll get thinking to myself, you know, when I go to bed and wake up in the morning, I get to drink coffee. <laughs> Some of you know what I'm talking about. You start anticipating the next morning, that's me. Okay. Have I just confessed sin to you? Is the scuttlebutt after this uh, sermon going to be, uh, perhaps Pastor Steve enjoys his coffee a little too much? I wonder if it might be an idol in his life. I wonder, because aren't we supposed to deny ourselves? and take up our cross and follow Jesus? And how does loving coffee sound like a life that's carrying a cross and following Jesus? And enjoying coffee, everybody knows it's a slippery slope into loving the world and the things of this world, and we're not supposed to do that. So why even open up the possibility that Satan would use coffee to give you a worldly perspective on life? Is it wrong for a Christian to really, really enjoy something like coffee or some other created pleasure? And here we are in Ecclesiastes 2, and Solomon has just got done saying, I tried everything that's out there, and it's all vanity. Does that include coffee? Did Solomon try coffee and say that life now has no meaning? I find that hard to believe if he had a good coffee. Or wait a second, are we talking about two different things? What is Solomon saying and what is Pastor Steve saying? Is it okay for Christians to do this? If you grew up a fundamentalist Christian like me, not only did you grow up with bad coffee, but you grew up with some of these kinds of arguments where good Christian people don't actually enjoy things because... Good Christian people are more stoic about worldly, earthly pleasures. All of our focus is on heaven, right? I'm not going to enjoy anything here. Why? Because I'm going to enjoy it in heaven. In heaven, it's okay. On earth, it's a sin. You're familiar with some of these arguments if you grew up like I did. So what do we do then with all of these very wonderful, pleasurable, desirable Uh, sensory experiences that just being a normal human being living in this created, wonderful, amazing world, we not only desire, but we have the privilege on a daily basis to experience. Should I feel guilty about that? Or is it okay 
And if it is okay, how should a Christian navigate that and avoid what Solomon is saying here about all of it being vanity? That's where we're going in this message. And Solomon takes us down uh, this road because he, he does kind of a big, you know, a big uh, detour here in chapter 2 where he says this. So I'm beginning now in verse 24. Here's our text. There is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom, knowledge, and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Now, while we're in verses 24 through 26, notice that it comes on the heels of uh, verse 18 and following, where Solomon has been experimenting with toil and work and labor and the monetary profit that comes from that, and whether or not that gives him happiness or joy. And he gets to the end of that, and he says, it doesn't. I'm not happy because of what I've done or how I've been able to monetize it for my own profit. All of this money, all of this accumulation, all of this has to be left to somebody else. So what's the point? And you know that feeling if you've ever signed a will or a trust fund or something like that. It's sort of a creepy feeling when you sign that Everything I have, here's what happens to it. You realize in that moment, I don't get to keep anything. And who knows what these people or ministries are going to do with what I have spent my whole life laboring for. Now, these verses conclude a section that Solomon began in chapter 1, where he's exploring the normal human categories of life, things like vocation and desire and pleasure and money and solomon just rolls through all of these things and he gets to the end and he says none of these have made me happy that emptiness i still have it inside now what has been conspicuously absent though so far or i should say who has been conspicuously absent so far is god you know you expect when you read a book of the bible there's gonna be a lot of talk about god then you get to ecclesiastes And there's one passing comment in chapter 1, verse 13, but it's not until we get to the end of chapter 2 that he actually begins to give us a little bit of theology. He begins to talk about God. And the reason that he's not talked about God, remember, is that he's trying to describe life without God and what that feels like inside, even as you try to fill that void with some other thing. And Solomon has said, all of the money, all of the success, all of the wives, and all of the power without God is empty. It is futility. But now in these verses, Solomon describes a way for us to actually enjoy the futility. And notice, first of all, in verse 24, that he commends the enjoyment of life and the pleasures of life. Look at verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Now we look at this and say, Solomon, are you like schizo? Because you just got done saying all of these things 
There is no lasting enjoyment in them. And then you get to verse 24 and you're like, hey, why don't you go ahead and try to enjoy those things? How do we do it? What are you talking about? And the key we find is in verse 25. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? And that little phrase, apart from him, is the key. He has been describing all so far in Ecclesiastes what life apart from God feels like. But here now, he begins to talk about the opposite of that. That apparently with God, these things can take on an actual pleasure and a a commended enjoyment. Notice the uh, categories that he gives. There's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment. What's striking here is how plain and ordinary those things are. He doesn't say, you know, life's vanity, but if you can ever climb Mount Everest, man, the view from there, actually, that will bring meaning into your life. Or some other dramatic thing. He doesn't go to the, like, the, the ultimate kind of human experiences. He's talking about the normal ones. I'm going to guess most of you already this morning, you already ate something, didn't you? And you drank something. And that's every day. We do that all the time. And here he commends the enjoying of the daily activities of human life when they are lived not apart from God or experienced apart from God, when they are experienced with God. Friends, we have to understand that all of these blessings that we experience are gifts from God. And I'd like to just kind of explore that with you a little bit. Uh, to fight against this, um, as I hinted at earlier, this perspective that really spiritual people don't enjoy things. Um, No, really spiritual people are like God, and they enjoy physical and material things. I'd like to show you where God himself does that. And I have it on the, uh, the verse on the screen. If you want, you can go to Genesis 1. It's an easy chapter to find. It's the first one in the Bible, okay? Genesis 1, creation narrative. God creates the galaxies, he creates the plant life, he creates human beings, he creates everything. And then he gets to verse 31, uh, or we get to verse 31, describing God in, in that moment on the sixth day. He steps back and he looks at everything that he has done. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Now, that is a moral and an aesthetic evaluation, that what God made was extraordinarily wonderful. And we look in, you know, look in a telescope or you look in a microscope, you, you know, big or small and everything in between, even fallen creation that we live in is still amazing, isn't it? And uh, God steps back and he says, this is all very good. Now, he does not do this stoically. This is God himself enjoying the creation that he has just made, including coffee beans, by the way. Does God like coffee beans, haters? I have to say that if God looked at everything, including the coffee plant and its fruit, And he says it was very good that God likes coffee. I also think that God enjoys us enjoying it. 
frankly. So God makes this incredibly beautiful, wonderful creation, and then when he makes human beings, he gives us these human sensory receptacles, the five senses, that takes into our pleasure centers the things that he has made. So we have eyes that can see beautiful things, and we have ears that can hear beautiful things, and we have uh, taste buds that can taste really savory, wonderful things. And when we do experience those things, they make us happy, don't they? We enjoy them. We, we savor them. We like them. This, these are some of the best moments in, in the human story is when we are experiencing really wonderful, beautiful, aesthetic things, all of them from the hand of God. So when we are delighting in creation, we're simply doing the same thing that God did in Genesis 1. He delighted in creation, and he invites us into his his own delight in creation. And that's not unspiritual, unless you're prepared to say that God is unspiritual. God's not godly enough for you. No. He's very godly. He is God, right? Now, when you talk about this category, uh, many of you know I love C.S. Lewis, and, and he's written brilliantly on this subject of pleasure. So I would be remiss if I didn't at least quote him one time, uh, and I'm going to. And uh, I'd like to read a little section here from one of the books that he wrote entitled Screwtape Letters. And if you're familiar with Screwtape Letters, uh, it's the story of two demons. Okay, so it's a satirical some of you maybe view sarcastical uh, account of two demons who are plotting to undermine the faith of a Christian. And so the older demon, the uncle, is giving the nephew advice on how to take down these Christians. Okay, so when you read it, it's like everything's opposite. You have to kind of keep that in mind. And now some of you are completely confused. But uh, here is now the older demon giving the younger demon some advice on the subject of pleasure. He says, never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground. Now, who's the enemy of Satan, by the way? God. So there's the satire, okay? The enemy here is God. We're on God's territory. I know we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it is his invention, not ours. He is a hedonist at heart. All those fasts and vigils and stakes and crosses are only a facade, or only like foam on the seashore. Out at sea, out in his sea, there is pleasure and more pleasure. He makes no secret of it. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore, Psalm 1611. He has filled his world full of pleasures. There are things for humans to do all day long without minding him minding in the least, Sleeping, washing, eating, drinking, making love, playing, praying, and working. Everything has to be twisted before it's any use to us. Now, what I love about that is it's an acknowledging of something that is often missed, I think, by Christians in the church. And that is that pleasure is God's territory. Okay? He made it. He made it, and he made us to experience it and to take pleasure in his own creation. And uh, this is always Satan's, or always, but this is one of Satan's temptations, is to 
undermine our understanding of the goodness of God, the, 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 the gifts that God has given. Let me give you an example of this. Go back to the Garden of Eden, okay? And Genesis 3, Satan comes to tempt Eve. How does Satan get Eve to sin? He questions the goodness of God. He says, did God really say that you shouldn't eat of this tree? Or does God know that if you do, you will become like him? Do you see the subtlety there? What is, what is he questioning? Not merely the goodness of God, but the fact that God is withholding goodness from you. That his moral laws uh, are unfair. And if he really loved you, he would let you eat of this and then you could become like God. God isn't good. He doesn't have your best interests at heart. He's questioning the goodness of God. And of course, Eve ate. And she ate apart from God. She ate apart from the will of God. And in that moment, she was the very first Ecclesiastes. Okay? Eve was Solomon before, before Solomon was Solomon. Like I was country when country wasn't cool. You know, it's, Eve was that. She was experiencing for the very first time an activity, a pleasure, a created thing apart from God himself and enters into that experience of emptiness that now is the despair of the human condition. So, Solomon, what are you saying? He is commending here. See it. He is commending the enjoyment of things. It is not unspiritual. It is actually uh, partnering in God's own enjoyment of his creation. Now, the second thing I want you to see here is that enjoying created things actually has a requirement. You have to first enjoy the creator. To enjoy created things, you have to enjoy uh, the creator. And Solomon now talks about the plight of the atheist and the materialist, the pagan, the unbeliever, the person who's living life apart from God. And he describes the despair of their condition in verse 26. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting. Okay, what a description of life. Gathering and collecting, gathering and collecting. This is the workaholic. This is the, the, the guy whose the whole goal of his life is the accumulation of things or a net worth or some other standard. But he's living his whole life for that. He is not in any kind of relationship with God. He is not seeing these things as any kind of gift from God. He is just about the thing itself. And what does, uh, what does Solomon point out? All of that accumulating only to give to one who pleases God, and his conclusion is, that's vanity. You want to talk about a stupid way to live your life? Live your life for the accumulation of things, thinking they will make you happy. But the pile of money has a harsh reality. He says here, you have to give it all away. In fact, the text says, you give to one who pleases God. I kind of wondered what that meant because it doesn't seem to play out that way. There are many people that accumulate a lot of things and then they give it to, you know, some organization or something. So I didn't know what that meant, but I, I think he is speaking in, a, in the broad sense that, uh, like Jesus said, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Or you, you go to Revelation and it says that the wealth of the nations is brought into the new Jerusalem. That in the end, ultimately, not only does everything come from God, but everything returns to God and to his people. 
But the point that I'm trying to make here is that the unbeliever who is experiencing aesthetic pleasures, drinking their coffee apart from God, are, there is a, a level of enjoyment, but it is a provisional one. It is an incomplete one. Paul describes this uh, way of living in Romans 1 this way. Okay, listen for the disconnect between God and his created gifts. Here's verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Here's God's response. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the glory about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature. I think the uh, NIV translates that created things rather than the creator who is forever blessed. And that last phrase is the key to understand that in the world around us that is experiencing all the same joys and pleasures, the common graces that God gives to human beings living in this amazing world, that they are experiencing them, but they are only experiencing the thing itself. There is no connection between that experience and the God who gave them that experience or the God who gave them that gift. The goodness of God, the grace of God. In fact, Paul says they, they don't do two things. They fail to give God honor. And this means that they don't acknowledge him. They don't reverence him. They maybe don't enjoy that pleasure in the manner that God intended it to be. And secondly, they fail to give God thanks. And that's what Solomon is saying here. They experience them apart from God. They enjoy the simple and the ordinary blessings, but they don't see them as being from God. They, there is a sense of entitlement. I deserve this. I've earned this. To quote Bart Simpson, who uh, once prayed a, a prayer before dinner, he said, uh, uh, Dear God, we paid for this stuff, so thanks for nothing. That's a, a good summary of, of what we're talking about here. The human, this is mine. There is no God. I have earned this. It's mine to do whatever I want with. There is a pleasure that they have in that, but it's an incomplete one. Why? Because they're not connecting the dot between the gift and the giver of the gift. That's why Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 17, he encourages the rich to put their hope not in their riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Okay? That's in the Bible. God wants us to enjoy these gifts. It is okay to love coffee. Now, if you're bowing down to it, lighting candles to it, worshiping it, it's another story. But the, the normal enjoying of a cup of coffee is holy. Haters. <laughs> it is holy. Or here's Augustine. He loves thee too little. Here's the quote. Hang with me. He loves thee too little, or, or not, he, he doesn't love you enough, who loves anything together with thee, that he loves not for thy sake. He loves thee too little who loves anything together with thee that he loves not for thy sake. And that gets at it. 
The materialist experiences it apart from God, as Ecclesiastes says, but the Christian now experiences these pleasures, but does so with an awareness and an understanding that this is something that God has given to me. Further, the Christian understands his own depravity. To to understand the gospel as grace is to understand that I don't deserve this, and yet God has loved me. I I deserve hell, and yet God is giving me heaven and eternal life. And when the Christian understands in the big picture, the big issue, that it is the grace of God, it is a gift from God, that I deserve the worst and God is giving me the best, once I get that as being the, a gift from God, now all the other things in life, and there are many things in life that are blessings to us, I see those also as being from the hand of God. Okay? And that's a key point. I think there are many Christians who fail to connect their coffee with their conversion. They, they don't connect the joy of raising children with the grace of God to them in Jesus in salvation. They don't connect that beautiful sunset with the grace of God to them in Jesus. It is God's grace to us in Jesus that tells us in the ultimate sense that God is good, that God is the giver of good gifts, that he is filled with grace. And now to then experience everything else also as grace gifts infuses those things with thanksgiving and gratitude, and I would even argue, makes them taste better. Pastor Steve, what do you mean by that? Because doesn't the coffee taste the same to the unbeliever at the Starbucks as the Christian at the Starbucks, yes, in a certain sense, and no, in a certain sense. Because the Christian who is tasting the coffee is, if he is drinking the coffee properly, which is theologically, he is thankful for that cup of coffee. And there is a sense of gratitude that I would argue makes the coffee taste better. So you haters just need to get saved. That's what I'm saying. (laughs) Do you get what I'm saying with that, though? Once you understand God's grace in the macro, you enjoy his goodness in the micro. Somebody write that down for me because it's not in my notes, but that is a really good way to say it. I'd like to use it next service. Or as I have written elsewhere, beauty leads to wonder and wonder leads to worship. When I experience joys and gladness in this created world, I connect those with the God who has given and I give thanks to him. And this is advantage Christian. Because if you are not a Christian and you are not connecting those dots, the law of diminishing returns crushes ultimately your joy even in the good things that are in this world and to give you an example of this i'm going to this is a, the perfect guy to quote from listen to charles darwin describe what uh, happened over the course of his life in the aesthetical experiences 
that he did. And of course, you know who Charles Darwin is, okay? He writes this, up to the age of 30 or beyond it, poetry of many kinds gave me great pleasure. And even as a schoolboy, I took intense delight in Shakespeare. Formerly, pictures gave me considerable joy and music very great delight. But now for many years, I cannot endure to read a line of poetry. I've tried to read Shakespeare and find it so intolerably dull that it nauseated me. I have also almost lost any taste for pictures or music. I retain some taste for fine scenery, but it does not cause me the exquisite delight which it formerly did. My mind seems to have become a kind of machine for grinding out general laws out of a large collection of facts. But why this should have caused the atrophy of that part of the brain alone on which the higher tastes depend, I cannot conceive. The loss of these tastes is a loss of happiness and may possibly be injurious to the intellect and more probably to the moral character by enfeebling the emotional part of our nature. Darwin gets to the end of his life and he says, nothing makes me happy anymore. Even things that I used to think were made me happy, they don't make me happy anymore. And this from a guy that is, you know, famous and admired in the intellectual com com uh, community the world over, buried with honors at Westminster Abbey. What do we say? Ecclesiastes, Darwin. Ecclesiastes. You can't escape it. This world without God, in the end, is disappointing. So, since we want to avoid this, how should we then enjoy these fleeting pleasures in our futile life? How's that for a heading? <laughs> You're like, this is depressing. Let's just go drink coffee. All right. <clears throat> Two things. Number one, we have to train ourselves to connect the dots between the experience of the gift and the giver of the gift. Okay? Connect the dots between the experience of the gift and my gladness in the gift with the giver of the gift, who is God. And Solomon says here, for to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. Okay, wisdom and knowledge, we see that all over in the Bible. We kind of expect that. But joy, is, is joy something that God actually gives as a gift? The enjoyment of things, the pleasure, happiness that it gives to me? Indeed it is. That joy is a gift, okay? So the carnal man experiences joy. He drinks the coffee, he says, hmm, that's really good. In fact, my daughter, in the morning, she'll be eating breakfast, I'll be sipping my coffee, and I, unknowingly, I'm kind of doing this like little sip. Ah. <sighs> Ah, and sometimes she'll all of a sudden go, ah. <laughs> she's like mocking me. She's two, and she's mocking me. I love her. But they drink that way too. But there's no thanksgiving in a kind of vertical way. It is merely the experience of the bean and the brew. That's all that they have. There's no theology when he drinks. There is no worship. There is no connecting of even a small joy with God. And life apart from God is nothing but disappointing. That's Ecclesiastes. 
okay? But the Christian has experienced salvation. I get that God has shown me grace and love in Jesus. I, I have received that message, and I believe totally in the goodness of God. And as I said, when we get that in the macro, now all the micros of life can similarly be opportunities for worship and gladness and joy in God. So... Think about what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12. Give thanks in all things, for this is God's will for you. How can the Christian give thanks in all things? By connecting all things with the giver of all things. Do you do that? Like how often do you bring God, awareness, thoughts of, worship of, thanksgiving to, into those daily blessings that God gives to you. Again, we're talking about eating and drinking are the two that are mentioned. I think it applies to everything. Do you think about God in those moments? Now, many of us, if you're a very astute Christian, you know, you must pray and give thanks before you eat. But so often that's kind of a, you know, we just sort of do it. And then we eat the food. And are we still doing it as we do that? That's the point. Connect those happy moments with God himself. Or to, to give an illustration this way, most of us probably have some gift that we've received that we would call a sentimental gift, okay? And this is normally somebody, a loved one, parent, grandma, grandpa, whatever. You have, you have grandpa's tools, or you have grandma's bracelet, or you have you know, something that was special to your mom that she gave to you. And if I was to ask you, what are the most valuable things that you own Many of us would probably pick these sentimental gifts. Like that's if the if the house is burning down and we're running out, those are the things we're grabbing as we go. Why why are those things so precious to us? Because when I put on mom's bracelet, it makes me think of mom. And when I use grandpa's tools, it makes me think of grandpa which makes that a very special sentimental type moment, right? And that is, what, that is what I'm saying that we ought to do spiritually in all of these gifts that we experience from God is that there ought to be a kind of spiritual, sentimental worship thing that goes on where we connect that thing with the giver of it. It makes us think about him with gratitude, to say it this way about coffee, since it's the theme, that Christian coffee isn't better, but coffee tastes better to a Christian. Not because of the bean or the brew, but because of the thankful, theologically oriented Christian who is drinking it. You're all looking at me in that sort of, well, that was a profound way to say it. I have no idea what he's saying there. Just to say it this way, that we could legitimately put it on the sign out front, our coffee tastes better. <laughs> Not because our coffee tastes better, but there is a level of thanksgiving and joy in the giver of the gift that makes the gift itself better. So Christians ought to be the most robust, aesthetically enjoying people in all of the world because we connect it with the giver of the gift. And the last thing I want to say is we have to realize that the full enjoyment of these created things depends on one key ingredient. You have to know personally the creator. 
You have to know personally the Creator. This is the question that Solomon is begging. He's basically laying out two ways of living. On the one side is the carnal man, the materialist. He's just hoarding and accumulating. He's working, he's toying, he's laboring, only to give it away to somebody else. On the other side, we have the life that is lived faithfully under God, enjoying the daily blessings with gospel-shaped thanksgiving. And that's what he's commending. And you can try to do the latter, but until there is a genuine relationship with God, it's not going to happen. And the only way for that relationship to be true in your life is for you to personally put your faith and trust in the giver of the gifts, Son. In fact, the ultimate gift that has ever been given to us is Jesus Christ, okay? And the reason that Jesus came was so that we might know, is the biblical term, that we might know our Creator, that we might have a relationship with Him by faith. And that's what it takes. You have to put your faith and trust in His Son, Jesus. So I wonder, do you know the Creator? Do you know your Creator? John 17, 23, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Because to know God is to enjoy God first, and then secondly, to enjoy all the good gifts that he gives to us. Life's too short to drink bad coffee. Who's thirsty? Amen? Amen. Amen.